Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Just reminding us that we're all born with a core psychobiological drive. And that drive, it is now clear from the work of neuropsychologists such as Alan Shore, uh, Omri Gilead, Mario McEwen, Sir, Phil Shaver, Mary Maine, blah, 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 all the way down the line, uh, is to connect with others. Our species is a social species, but even more importantly, um, human beings are born many, many years before we can take care of ourselves. And so our ability to survive, our survival is rests upon the quality of our being able to establish a secure bond with a caregiver. If we don't establish that bond, then we are fucked. That's the clinical term for it. So, um, of course, the brain has built in not only vital circuits in the anterior cingulate cortex, uh, and also uh, the wiring to the, the first wiring that comes in place for babies is actually the ability to discern faces, to make eye contact. Uh, eye contact has been shown to uh, activate the secretion of oxytocin, love uh, hormone, as well as raising serotonin and endorphin levels in parents. So we connect to stay alive. And in fact, the uh, core drive can almost be put, as uh, Diana Fosha, a wonderful uh, psychologist notes, the, the desire to be seen in the eye of the other, to have someone uh, maintain eye contact and to present the sense that we matter to them. And our well-being is established in those bonds where we get that contact, where we start to develop the dance of mirroring, where the baby expresses or embodies different states of being and the mother mirrors them back so if the child's scared the mother mirrors that or if the child's excited the mother or father mirror that back and in that that tango of, uh, of action and mirrored response of uh, the miracle of emotion co-regulation happens the child's autonomic nervous system starts being down-regulated to what could be called uh, homeostasis, rest, relax, confidence, a secure base. So this is an entirely vital uh, bond that's made and all infants are born with this as our primary purpose in life, to establish the secure base with 
first the primary caregiver and then secondary caregivers. The caregiver from the child's perspective is seen as the one who knows and the child is born into a hierarchical power dynamic in the sense that the child will do anything to maintain a sense of connection and will uh, essentially uh, prostrate itself both literally and metaphorically in any way to maintain a secure connection. Uh, hopefully the parents will portray this sense of caring and being emotionally available and reliable and appreciative of the child's development and soothing when the child falls or makes a mistake or feels agitated or uncomfortable or hungry or tired or whatever. So that's when all goes well. Even the most secure of parents not to mention, of course, those that are not capable of being secure. There are times when the parents are stressed out, distracted, where their attention is pulled in various different directions. And so those times where the child, the infant, loses connection are felt as annihilation. The child's very conduit to survival is abridged is not abridged is a uh, cut off uh, and so the child is in a place where it feels exceedingly vulnerable and now its emotions cannot be regulated because it depends on adults to soothe it and down regulate its nervous system uh, so the infant feels like it's uh, completely overwhelmed and constant danger and those times the right hemisphere of the brain lights up and tries to learn what led to this disconnection. Now, over time, the right hemisphere will start to notice that um, very often the parent pulls away when the child maybe cries or gets frustrated or starts kicking or the child, the child starts pouting or the child exhibits some challenging negative emotion, the tired parent gets exacerbated or loses the quality of connection and then the child feels abandoned and the right hemisphere of this child now associates this emotional state that she or he felt that led to the disconnection. It associates those states with vulnerability and the possibility of well, death even. I know it sounds absurd, but the, for the infant, the loss of connection is the worst possible experience. And so the child, if there's a pattern of abandonment, the parent just looks away, gets frustrated, even becomes scary to the child. When the child exhibits certain, certain affects, then the child will learn essentially, holy shit, I cannot allow myself to experience those states of being because they lead to abandonment and they lead to the, the most painful experiences I know. So the right will start to do anything it can to suppress these affects or impulses that are associated with abandonment. They're 
these affects will be failed to be integrated into the child's um, conscious life. And they will feel extremely threatening. And Freud noted that when repressed memories, affects, emotional states, or impulses, behaviors start to arise in us, if those are associated with abandonment, we will experience anxiety. Anxiety is not so much the fear that something out there will attack me or harm me. Anxiety is the fear that something in me that will that leads to rejection, some per, some emotion or some quality, will lead to my abandonment. And so, anxiety, jumpiness, hypervigilance, and so forth is what we feel. So, for example, if a young girl grows up in a misogynist culture where she is, uh, there's a pattern of shaming for any time she expresses any form of anger, she will then start to associate the very natural uh, state of being that is anger, which is extremely healthy to feel at times and is necessary to set boundaries and protect herself, but she will feel that anger is an affect that could lead to her social rejection. When she starts to feel it, she will do anything, develop defense mechanisms to protect herself from feeling those threatening emotional states. Likewise, if a child grows up with same-sex attraction in a homophobic culture, the child, when it starts to exhibit any behaviors associated with uh, those feelings, will be rejected, perhaps, by parents or peers. The child will have to repress them, and then when subsequently they start to feel those same sex, same sex attraction, they will become anxious, hypervigilant, and look for a way to distract themselves or disconnect from those feelings at all costs to protect themselves. So one of the most classic defense mechanisms that protect from this kind of abandonment is uh, cognitive ideation. In other words, when we start to feel something that we're uncomfortable with, we immediately, the left hemisphere jumps in and presents an interior dialogue, a lot of inner chatter, that distracts our attention away from the physiological emotions that are associated with abandonment, rejection, loneliness, and so forth. So people, for example, if they are scared of their anger, when they start to feel it, they will repress it by having thoughts of resentment. They'll live in stories recounting their mistreatment, but that those stories are there not to in any way act out or adjust or set boundaries. They're there to repress the feeling of anger, which is so threatening. Likewise, if somebody is threatened by their feelings of guilt after antisocial, anti-tribal acts, when they start to feel guilt or remorse, they will repress it with rationalization. They'll rationalize away the behavior because perhaps in their childhood when they did anything they felt guilty about, they were exorbitantly punished. And so guilt for them is a threatening state to feel. People will repress their fear with other emotions or their 
sense of powerlessness with stories of grandiosity and so forth. So all of this leads us to tonight's topic, which is um, we are all to varying degrees arrive in our adult life with a host of impulses, emotions, experiences, memories that we are desperate not to get in contact with and experience. And for many of us, that leads to the desire to find a transcendent idea or a transcendent, transcendent teacher or guru or religious figure that creates the illusion that it is possible to rise above one's negative emotions, to never experience them again, to eliminate all the parts of ourselves that we associated early on in our life and in our peer relationships with rejection. So instead of doing the hard work, which is what meditation and therapy is geared towards, which is integrating our emotions, even our sadness, our loneliness, our grief, our frustration, our anger, our confusion, our shock, our disgust into our lives so that we can feel them and actually take adaptive actions on their behalf. It's so much more enticing to search for a figure that presents this facade of imperturbability, of calmness, tranquility, Welcome, students. <laughs> I am so glad you came to my meditation class. And uh, we all want them to have this presentation of, I have never felt a negative emotion, fear, anger, shame, guilt, distraught. Um, so, you know, we're looking for that confidence that relax, that imperturbable figure that exemplifies the states of being we want to have because we associate those states with social acceptance and being lovable and being rewarded with connection and attention. So we look for that to varying degrees, especially in figures that can be associated with spiritual endeavor. Uh, it so happens that I am absolutely none of us. I am an uh, anxious, sober guy with a history of addiction up until my 30s. I've been sober for 25 years, but I spent a lot of my, my early life just dealing with an anxiety disorder, enormous amounts of shame, the out growth, the, the long-term results of growing up in a violent alcoholic family. And um, I try to present that in every talk and try to assure you that I am not here to try to teach you any way to remove any emotion or any feeling or any impulse or any uh, memory from you. Everything I'm trying to present to you is based on integration. And I am in no way some 
figure that has attained some state where I am now floating ab above, you know. If somebody cuts me off on my bike and I'm in the wrong mood, I, I can get as angry as you could imagine. Um, I wrote a piece for Tricycle Magazine, it's a Buddhist magazine, and uh, about, it's called Why I Come Clean to My Students About My Insomnia, Anxiety, and Sobriety. And I put forward a lot of these ideas that it is um, very much, not only so that I can be authentic for you, but more importantly, I believe it's harmful when teachers present an act of uh, some kind of, and I've seen it all the time, I can't tell you how many other Buddhist teachers I've met, many of whom the person that you get to know who, when they're not teaching is very, very different from the presentation that happens in classes. No, I'm not going to name names. But, uh, uh, so when I wrote this article, uh, I, I did something that I, uh, I, I never do, uh, or try not to ever do which is I actually looked at the comments, which is a terrible idea. If you ever do anything where you put yourself out there. When, I, when my book came out, I didn't look at the reviews, you know, because I knew that that would be, if there was like a negative one, you know, you sort of spotlight the one, you know, you get 99 positive things, but if there's one troll in there, it could just, it could just, <laughs> It can take a lot of spiritual work to calm down from it. But I just looked at it, and it was funny, because there were so many loving, kind, wonderful, wonderful comments. But then there was dispersed in there, nobody should teach who has anxiety. Nobody should teach who's who has you know ever struggled with insomnia. I don't want to go and hear that. I want to go and hear someone who's worked it all out. That's literally what somebody wrote. So, um, uh, to me, I'm gonna list some of the reasons why I think this is uh, a really bad idea. Number one, if we really are in the presence of someone who's exalted, who seems to have figured out the magic method, to no longer have any negative emotions. It will, without any doubt, create a sense of failure or doing something wrong or uh, I am somehow not living up or I, there's something wrong with me. Because this person over there, they look so beatific. And we're so prone to do that. We always project the what Freud called the ideal ego, the super ego projects the ideal ego onto other people and uses that as a way to to, to essentially uh, downgrade ourselves, to belittle ourselves, because the super ego believes that the best way to keep us socialized is by constantly 
presenting ourselves as lesser than someone else. So it creates a sense of there's something wrong about me. This idea that that, that person over there doesn't ever get sad or lonely or angry. Um, two, this facade is often presented as the result of a, a substantial period of time spent in some kind of isolating meditation. With every transcendent claim I've ever encountered, there's people whisper, well, he spent, you know, nine years in a cave in the Himalayas, you know, uh, eating sunshine and, you know, uh, I, I don't know. There's this idea that this transcendence has got to be the result of some sustained uh, endeavor that was achieved entirely from within and bullshit. To the degree that any human being achieves any degree of uh, sustained peace of mind and well-being, there must be socialization and robust interpersonal connections involved. If you want to drive someone stark, raving, crazy, make them mad, drop them into solitary confinement, it doesn't matter how much practice that person has, how much time that person has spent alone in, in preparation, they will become dysregulated in somewhere between 72 and 86 hours, studies show. It doesn't matter if you go in free of personality disorders, you will start to exhibit them very, very quickly. Uh, human beings are wired, are literally the anterior cingulate cortex, which is involved in the regulation of endorphins and serotonin, vital neurotransmitter hormones that keep us in a balanced state of being in any kind of degree of sanity are activated depending upon the, the, the solidity and the durability of our relationships. Now, meditation has a huge role, but that role is to sustain us in between the times that we connect and bond and emotionally co-regulate each other. But if we don't have that vital feature, there is no lasting sanity. Uh, another, another myth here is that the revered teacher has some kind of um, insight knowledge that if we just comb through the first 300 pages of their book, we'll find this one sentence or idea or some kind of deeply refined gem of a uh, of, uh, of a idea that will be the key to our uh, liberation, to our awakening. And this grasping after ideas to find some for form of relief in life goes all the way back to that defense mechanism of thinking as a way not to feel our feelings. It's based on that idea that left hemispheric uh, interpret the interpreter which has spent so long in our lives distracting us, our awareness away from 
the core affects we experience somatically in our bodies, it's based on this idea that if we just found that great idea, that great sentence, that great book, that great passage, that, that great lyric, that somehow that will be the, the conduit to our lasting peace of mind. The Buddha called this suffering Diti Upadana, grasping after some idea that will lead to liberation. And in one of his most important suttas, the Raf Sutta, he says, nothing we should cling on to at all times because nothing can be the, the groundwork to our liberation. He, he uses this metaphor of a raft, which is a metaphor for him of ideas and thoughts and insights and the ideas that we cling to any of them they will no longer service, they'll be unwieldy, and they won't work. That what works in one time of our life will not work in other time of our lives. Um, this brings me to one of my favorite, two of my favorite teachings from the Dharma. The first is from the tradition that I most align with, the Theravada. In the Kalama Sutta, my, uh, I have to say my favorite sutta, uh, the Buddha is visiting a dharmasala, which is a hall in a town where people would go and debate, spiritual teachers, shramanas, would go and present their spiritual ideas and philosophies and practices, and people would listen. And so this area, there had been a lot of teachers passing through, and they were all teaching contrasting insights and practices and, and uh, modalities and so forth. And so the Kalamas, the people of this town, came to the Buddha and they said, essentially, why should we believe you? We hear so many different teachers. And during the Indus Valley period where the Buddha lived, there was I mean, there was an entire class of mendicant spiritual practitioners who would just wander around and give spiritual thoughts. And that was in addition to the Brahmin priests that were the official kind of religion of the day. So there was a lot of contrasting ideas. So the Buddha responds in a, in a way that has always really profoundly spoken to me. Um, don't believe in popular wisdom. Don't believe in common sense. Don't believe what's rumored, what's written down or pondered, or even what's taught by a revered teacher. And here he's talking about himself. When you experience for yourself which actions create dukkha, which is suffering, and which don't, then you will know for yourself how to act and behave and conduct yourself. So this is known as the Charter of Free Inquiry. It's essentially can be thought of as the don't believe me sutta. Don't believe anyone. See for yourself. Of course, it's a great idea to listen to, to different perspectives. But the Charter of Free Inquiry demands that we don't take anything for granted, that we don't believe anything before we see for ourselves that certain actions do not cause us uh, the feelings and the states of being that we yearn for in our life. The Buddha goes on in that sutta, by the way, to say, 
to the practitioners around him, in your life, have actions that caused harm to other beings in the long term make you feel good? And they all go, no. And they said, have actions where you took care of others, you acted from compassion. Did they make you feel good? And they said, yes. And then basically says, do you want to feel good? <laughs> and they say, yes. And then he says, okay. From your own experience, from what you have seen in your life, you now have learned one of the most valuable tools. You don't need to believe me. Another, the second teaching, the Buddhist sage Lin Chi, uh, Chan Buddhist from, uh, I think, around 9th century China, has a, is sitting with a group of practitioners, and one practitioner has this big aha moment. And the aha moment is this period, this, in this meditation, this practitioner believes they've experienced an awakening. And so they do what all practitioners do. They go and they prostrate themselves before the teacher, and they're looking for this teacher, this ideal parent, this loving figure to say, you have done it. You've become awakened. It's just like the child going to the parent and saying, look, I did really well in my homework. It's that, that uh, embodiment of the hierarchical structures and power dynamics we grow into as childhood, played out now in adult life. So this practitioner goes to Lin Chi and says, I think I've, I've achieved liberation uh, and tells Lin Chi, and Lin Chi's response is very simple. He says, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. <laughs> what that means is this entire desire to find this perfect figure and to get some kind of accreditation or accredit, I can really not pronounce it. Accreditation. Thank you. That's a tough one. It's a word you read, but you don't, you never, somebody should stop you from trying to say it. <laughs> He's looking for validation, verification, you know, someone to say you figured out. And all, that stems from that dependency of childhood where we uh, desperately need, we don't believe that we've actually done anything worthwhile until some powerful figure above us says, yes, I acknowledge you. And so what Lin Chi is saying is to let go of one that search for that ideal spiritual figure and also to let go of that need for the validation to come from me or from anyone, and as well to let go of that need to find that one thing that you can hold on to, like an idea or a, a, you know, a menu, but in fact to simply experience it and then and embrace the experience itself without needing to seek some kind of uh, authority to grant you that achievement. Um, the religious fetishization, fetishization of an exalted figure for me goes entirely against the essence of what the Buddha taught. The Buddha 
the Dharma is entirely animated by empiricism. Empiricism means not to go into any experiment or any experience with a predetermined idea of what the truth is, but to go in from the perspective of observing and seeing for yourself what is true. And to me, this requires uh, being outside of the dogmatic religious hierarchies and guru worship that have played so much of uh, contemporary religious endeavor. I, this is what attracted me to, um, I was looking when I first got into Buddhism due to my father in the early 70s, when I was like just turning 11 or 12, my dad started dragging me. I always loved the iconoclastic teachers that were kind of uh, never presenting themselves as pure or refined. My dad hated them. He really liked the ones that were constantly uh, serene all the time. Um, human beings heal and grow in environments that are actually free of authority and free of professionals. The reason that 12-step uh, programs work so well, and they do work pretty well, is that there are no people in the room that the individuals there who are suffering or are looking to address uh, self-sabotaging behaviors, we can go into a room and by the very fact that there is no one who is presented as above us or more, uh, has not achieved some higher level, people then can bond with each other and disclose their struggles and their challenges without any fear of judgment or, or uh, some kind of clinical, uh, uh, what do we call when we give somebody a di diagnosis? So uh, in Ajahn Brahm, Buddha Dasa is the great Buddhist teacher who founded Dharmic Socialism. He was a democratic socialist. And, uh, not an interesting guy, but he started practicing where he had no title that was in any way above any of the other practitioners. He stayed in a very simple hut like everyone else. And he was the most, his uh, 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 Sangha was most renowned for its ability to heal and sustain uh, a degree of well-being for his practitioners. So in short, as the Buddha's last words were in the sutta where he talks about being a lamp or an island, it's, the translations are different depending on who translates it, but the Buddha was encouraging people, his practitioners, to always again see for themselves what is true to not take anything for granted, to not uh, to try out fresh ideas constantly, to explore. And the way this is done is to, through the practice of mindfulness, um, 
when we've taken actions in our life and we want to learn from them, the most important uh, residue to not rely on is what we think about those actions. Because the left hemisphere's interpreter region, Broca and Wernicke's region, region uh, is not in any way established to give us an objective perspective on our actions. The role of inner chatter is simply to justify, to explain why we did what we did, and to essentially rationalize everything. We do not have, as uh, one uh, neuropsychologist writer puts it, a devil's advocate in the brain that says, you know what, that was actually a really bad idea in terms of language. That rarely comes up. Sometimes we have guilt and then we do eventually translate that guilt, if we're lucky, into a sense of, hey, wait, I shouldn't have done that. But much of the time, uh, the interpreter, it will be needlessly justifying. If it isn't needlessly justifying, if it is negative, it will be over the top in its attacks on us. But it will not give us a reliable sense of the quality of our actions, our behaviors. So how we do this is, in fact, we connect with the somatic markers, which are the product of the right brain's orbital frontal region, the markers that express themselves in our body. When we do something that is in the long-term well-being of our tribal connections for people in our life, the anterior cingulate and the orbital frontal will raise our levels of serotonin, endorphins, our heart rates will begin to slow down, and the markers in the vagal vagus nerve will begin to relax. We'll start to feel comfortable and good. On the other hand, when we do something that in some way endangers our tribal connections, so we act in some way that's selfish or, dis or uh, poorly thought out or uh, some way that was too uh, reactive, then what will happen is the right, the right interior cingulate will say, whoa, that actually didn't enhance my connections, that actually didn't create safer bonds in my life. And the somatic markers will tighten, will go into the sympathetic nervous system, the breath will start being a little shallower, the stomach will tighten, the mind will become jumpier and all the rationalizations will start to flood in there. So what we want to be able to do in the aftermath of important decisions and important uh, events in our life, if we want to at times check in, we visualize those actions and we simply notice the somatic markers that arise as the result. So that's what we're going to do in our meditation right now. We're going to learn how to be our own best teachers. So thank you for listening. I hope something in there was interesting. And now we're going to practice together. So find a really comfortable position. And if any of you really struggle sitting up, 
I know I do very often if there's not a back support. Uh, you can sit against the wall or the door. So, you know, don't, don't feel that you have to sit in the place where you were listening if you feel you'd be better supported by having a backrest. That's totally understandable. So, I'd like to invite you to just take a moment, if you like, sway back and forth, side to side, and just allow your body on its own to come to a standstill. If you don't think your way into a posture, then you'll be using your right hemisphere, which has far more synaptic connections to the body than your left. But to do that, you have to just allow your body on its own to come to a good position. Don't think your way into it. And um, so take a moment and just gently tilt your head slightly like you're, like you're gently lifting your chin. So it's like you're looking up at a tall building. And we do this just to counteract that tendency of the head to slouch in front of the chest, which is, undoes the good work we're trying to do here. And just feel the energy moving up your spine allowing your head to be nicely aligned with the stip bones, pelvis below. allow the sound of the air conditioner and any other sounds in the room to keep us anchored to the present moment. Let's take a few breaths just to start the process of self-soothing and relaxing body so take a nice complete in breaths and lift the shoulders up like we're trying to touch our ears just hold them up and then rotate them back a little if you'd like if that feels right for you and drop your shoulders with the out breath and just allow that the arms to hang like limbs off the tree dead limbs and the shoulders are pulled back so the chest is opened up. And that helps with establishing a posture associated with security. 
when we're vulnerable, we tend to contract the shoulders in front of our body to protect our chest. When we are secure, the chest opens up, makes it easier to bring the air, the breath in. Now let's take another full in-breath and like expand, bloat out the belly as you breathe in. And then very softly, slowly breathe out, relaxing the, the abdomen, softening. So abdominal breathing, you gently expand the belly as you breathe in. And then with the out-breath, relaxing, releasing any tension. And your abdomen is the region of the dorsal vagal nerve. So that's an important region to relax and send a message up. To the midbrain saying, I'm okay, my stomach is soft, I'm not in any threat. And for a third breath, it's breathing, just squinching all the muscles in the face, pinching the nose, furrowing the brow, locking the jaw, just contract all the muscles in the cranial nerve, and then relax. Breathe in, release the jaw, unfurrow the forehead, and especially just relax those micro muscles around the eyes. And uh, if it feels possible, encourage your eyes to just really settle like they are floating into warm sensory deprivation tanks the water that's warm, they're floating in, filled with saline so they can float. They don't have to keep track of any, of anything that's going on outside, we're safe. Just for a while, we'll sit in silence. If you benefit from focusing your attention on the, the breathing body, which is generally very useful, if you want to bring some alertness, then you make the in-breath exaggerated, if you want to relax, to self-soothe, then 
extend the length of your exhalations. The longer your exhalations, the more you engage the parasympathetic. So long, smooth exhalations to achieve greater ease, more dynamic, complete in-breaths to achieve greater degree of alertness, tension. You can also, as well, if you'd like to become slightly more awake, open one eyelid as you breathe in, and then lower as you breathe out. If it's difficult for you to pay attention to the breath, countings, Excellent tool, count one on the in, two on the exhalation, three on the next inhalation, four on the out breath, and then when you reach five, on that succeeding inhalation, start counting down. Four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. So you're counting up from one to five and back down. Just keeping the number in your mind as you breathe in or breathe out. It's very often enough just to maintain awareness. If your mind is really finding it difficult to relax, you could visualize a figure you associate with secure attachment, care, Someone who accepts you as you are. Just visualize that person looking at you, smiling. And if your mind does, or when your mind, I should say, not if, but when your mind wanders away, chasing after or winding up entirely embedded in a virtual reality known as a thought. The first thing when you realize that is not to feel in any way frustrated or disappointed. It's actually a wonderful opportunity. Each time we wake up from being lost in thought, we can ingrain our return home neurally, neurally wiring the route back from obsessive ideation back to calming present time awareness.
fill this time to take a survey of how you feel, especially for the purposes of this practice. We're going to just observe one. What is the quality of your breath? Does the out breath feel soft and smooth or cut off? Or is the rhythm more dominant on the inhalation or the exhalation. Noting the somatic markers in the front of the body, is your belly tight or relaxed? Your chest, does it feel closed or open, heavy or hollow or warm? any sensations in the mouth or the eyes, do the eyes feel jumpy, settled, light or heavy? Just get a sense of where you are right now. We'll use this as a kind of a baseline noticing if the mind is settled as well or if it's does it feel tired or does it feel bright and alert excited what's the mood so those are the three qualities the breath tension or ease in the front of the body, the belly, the chest, throat, and face, and the nature of what the Buddha called cheetah, the mind, is your attention scattered, focused, excited, filled with energy, or tired. Those are the qualities. Now look, or sorry, bring to mind uh, an action in your life that you feel really good about, sometime that you extended yourself to help someone, a time where you played a positive role in someone's experience where you were a benefit to others, something that you didn't have to do, but you saw that in some way people were happy for your work, your action, your endeavor. They expressed it, most of all, in looks of gratitude or acknowledgement recognition. If nothing comes to mind, then just visualize something that you would like to do that would help others. Visualize people rewarding you with expressions of acknowledgement. And as you do this, get a sense of the somatic markers that are activated 
the somatic marker is telling you you've done something worthwhile. For some it might be the breath relaxes, the stomach softens, the shoulders might release, maybe some muscle musculature in the face. Maybe the mind might become lighter. Just look for some nonverbal cue that tells you you've done something worthwhile. And now for the ancillary, bring to mind something that you've subsequently regretted. Something that might have hurt someone or disappointed them. Sometimes we let our reactivity overrun our better judgment. And we're not doing this to beat up on ourselves, just visualize that event and then once again check the somatic markers. For many now, negative somatics might be a tight stomach. The breath might become shallower and quicker. The throat might feel a little bit strangled or a heaviness in the mind, a clenching in the jaw. Maybe muscles in the back of the neck will contract. Just try to find some nonverbal cue the right hemisphere's way of communicating with us, both right and lower functions of the midbrain speak to us this way, through the body. And now, finally, let's bring to mind some action that we are planning to take or something that we've done that we haven't yet formed a coherent opinion about. Some interpersonal event, something perhaps that we've had to do or something that we're thinking of, pondering hold an image in the mind representing that action and then see if you can discern somatic markers, no matter how subtle, they might be the most subtle contraction or release, a subtle shift in the length of the out-breath or in-breath. subtle twinge of jumpiness in the mind or release. Trying to connect with all the nonverbal cues, subconscious regions of the brain present, trying to
express all the wisdom of those non-conscious regions. So, in a moment, I'm going to ring the small cymbals. When you hear the sound, very slowly, taking your time. Open your eyes enough to look at the ground in front of you. When you see the ground, try to integrate it into your awareness in a way that doesn't push embodied sensations out of your conscious apprehension. If we simply look around the room at other people, the sights will become dominant and we'll lose the conscious observing of our internal experience, which is so vital if we want to act skillfully and integrate all of the wisdom of the mind. 